Hello and welcome to another special seasonal episode of A Stab in the Dark. While you're all using the Christmas period to unwind and watch your favourite crime dramas or curl up with the latest must-read crime novel, we've got another audible treat just for you. My name's Mark Billingham and today, sitting here in our twinkly, tinsel-festooned incident room, I'm very happy to welcome the wonderful actor Colin Buchanan. Colin has starred in a host of TV crime shows and even lent his voice to a few audiobooks down the line, but the role he's perhaps most well-known for is D.I. Peter Pascoe. I'll be chatting to Colin about his career in crime, what it was like to work with the late, great Warren Clark, and his links to one of the legends of British crime fiction, Reginald Hill. From D in P in our previous episode to D and P in this one. But DL and Pasco and Death in Paradise couldn't be any more different. Yes, they're both hugely popular crime dramas, but I just can't see DSDL and DI Pasco reclining on a beach in their skimpy trunks and sipping cocktails together. Can you? Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thanks for coming in, Colin. Um, welcome to the podcast. Need to get this sorted straight off the bat. What is the correct pronunciation of DL and Pasco? I've been saying DL, but do people say it in all sorts of weird? Oh, oh wow! I've heard everything. Oh, what have you heard? Dalili, Dalili, obviously, and uh, well, all sorts. But the, but you're absolutely right. The correct pronunciation is DL. Um, I mean, the, the easiest way to remember it is that it's just a, it's a Scottish name, uh-huh. and any Scottish name surname that begins with D and ends with L, no matter what letters you have in the middle. It's DL. You can't go wrong. You, you can't go wrong. DL. DL. Um, obviously best known for, for your role in DL and Pasco, but before we talk about that, you had a role in another huge 90s hit, A Touch of Frost. What, what, what are your memories from oh, that? Oh, Lord. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I had a very small part in A Touch of Frost, really. I mean, yeah, but no, it's A Touch of Frost. I, yeah. Um, well, I, I just played a, a bog-standard copper. Really. Right. Um, and uniform, I was in, uniform copper. Uniform copper. Yeah. And I, was, I only did about three episodes uh, because I actually got another gig at the same time. Uh, and the producer of uh, Touch of Frost very, very kindly let me out my contract to go off and do this other other gig, which was for about four and a half months. Okay. And um, and, and on the condition that I actually came back. Oh, so you do... didn't get killed off or anything? I didn't get killed <laughs> off, no. But, I mean, I had to come back and do the final episode of Touch of Frost that I was contracted to do. Um, <laughs> literally, I was falling down um, a hillside in Canic Chase at four o'clock in the morning, and then that was a wrap on that job. Three hours later, I was in Leeds, um, with a brand new haircut, brand new uniform, and um, going on set with David Jason. An actor's life. Oh yeah. <laughs> so was it was it like working with David Jason? Oh, it was it was it was fun. I mean, I I I sort of kept myself to myself really because it was it was one of my first an early um, job, yeah. an early job. So you, you do kind of keep your head down and don't um, create too much trouble, and you just you know listen. Do what you're told. Don't bump into the furniture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but so but a touch of frost was kind of the, just the start of it in terms of crime. Um, other credits, you know, the bill between the lines, Dangerfield, Heartbeat, Agatha Christie's The Pale Horse, quite a sort of lineup when it comes to crime dramas. Well, let's let's concentrate on, on DL and Pasco because you know clearly a massive hit from the late nineties right the way up to two thousand and seven. You know, still hugely popular show, still showing on the, on the Drama Channel. What do you think? I mean, very very difficult question to answer succinctly, but what what made it so popular and successful? Do you think, Colin? First of all, I think it was what most people pick up on is the relationship between myself and Warren, yeah. uh, which was genuine. I mean, um, we were a lot more than uh, just work colleagues. Uh, we were very, very good friends as well. And that, that, was, that was true from the very beginning. And I don't think you can fake that on screen. Um, and, it, you know, people can really tell when there's a, there's a proper 
genuine relationship there. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little upset because it was yeah. only a couple of years well, ago. Well, yeah, we got, obviously <laughs> I, want, I want to talk, uh, talk yeah, about no, Warren. No, but, I mean, a show lives, lives and dies on the chemistry, I think, between... You know, certainly, so between the fictional characters, between Diel and Pasco, in a way, and if you've got that chemistry off screen as well, yeah. then it makes it so much easier, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, oh, oh, oh for, for certain. And, and also, I mean, the, they, the books were tremendous. Um, I mean, they, they weren't uh, your bog standard detective drama, no, 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 drama. They were much, much more than that. I mean, I, when I was first approached about it, um, I couldn't have been more dismissive. Because <laughs> oh, really? I didn't, know, I didn't know what I was talking about, basically. But I, I'd been invited to this um, awards do, which was the first awards do I'd ever been to, and there was no reason for me to be there. But um, but the reason that I'd been invited was because this uh, executive producer wanted to talk to me about Deal and Pasco, okay. and I think my initial reaction to him was like the world needs another detective show. <laughs> but he was he was really insistent about it. Um, and, you know, to the point where he even followed me to the loo while I was having a pee, still okay. talking away over my shoulder. So I got to the end of the evening and I just thought, well, you know, I'd better check this out because, you know, he's, he seems very keen. And, you know, so I went and got um, about 10 of the books. So you hadn't read, you weren't a fan of crime fiction or anything not before really, that? You hadn't not, read not much? Not at all, no. Um, okay. The, the, only thing, the only thing I knew about Deal and Pasco uh, was that Hale and Pace oh. had done it. Um, we, okay, let's get that which, out of the way. Let's get <laughs> Hale and Pace out of the way right now. People listening to this may not know this. It's one of the great pieces of kind of crime fiction, crime drama trivia uh, that, that uh, Colin uh, and Warren Clark were not the first actors to portray uh, D.L. and Pasco, that there was a short-lived, thankfully short-lived uh, version of D.L. and Pasco on a different channel, I think, uh, starring Hale and Pace. Yes, I said that, Hale and Pace, the management. Um, <laughs> And, and poor old Reg Hill, who we'll, we'll talk about later, I think very quickly went, I've got to get the rights, oh, yeah. the he, rights back he, to this. He, he jumped ship straight away. He just, he was not happy. Not oh, happy I man. mean, which TV executive, if I you're out know. there and you're listening, if you're the TV executive <laughs> that commissioned that, hang your head in shame. But did you ever see it? Did you ever see that? I, I caught about uh, 15 minutes of it, just because uh, a friend of mine from drama school was in it. Oh, right. Um, and I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> And I, but I, I still, I wasn't aware of the fact that they that it was based on books. I mean, I thought it was some kind of vehicle that they'd invented right. for Hale and Pace, which obviously wasn't working. <laughs> it was a very dodgy vehicle. Yeah, um, so <laughs> we fail its MOT. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I, I, I read about uh, ten of the books, right. and I just thought, hang on, this is, this is something a little bit different, yeah. uh, because it wasn't about um, uh, you know who done it or um, you know, or even why done it. It, it was Reginald Hill. Actually, when I spoke to when I spoke to Reginald, he sort of said that the original DL wasn't really a major character in his head when he started writing them. Um, his notion was that he was Pasco. He was this kind of middle class, yeah, quite educated bloke with um, a fairly conventional moral compass, and he wondered how he would react, put into certain. You know, testing situations and, and 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 all that kind of thing, and just just examine that. You know, himself really. Yeah. Um, but DL, and then DL came up as um, a kind of antagonist. How how much more of an antagonist could he create? <laughs> yeah. And then DL just um, developed a, a complete life of his own, uh, and obviously, you know, the the, the duo. 
uh, went on from from the, the, that first book. I mean, my God, can you imagine if you hadn't gone to that award ceremony, or if <laughs> or if you turned to that guy while you were having a pee and going, "Leave me alone, actually, I don't want to do your stupid job." You know, we wouldn't well, be was, sitting here was, talking it was, about. It was quite easy after I'd read the books. It was quite easy just to go, "Well, hang on, this this is something different," um, and then. Um, it, it, this doesn't happen anymore, but in those days you used to get scripts uh, way in advance. I mean, this was about three, four months in advance. And also um, Warren and myself were cast about four months before we were due to start shooting. Okay. Um, and then I found out that um, the the writers of the first series were Alan Plater and Malcolm Bradbury. Yeah, so I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah. This is, this we're, is we're quality in, we're stuff. We're in quality hands here. So, um, yeah, it made, it made it a very easy decision to... To go, to go for it. Well, I mean, I, I do want to talk a bit about, about Reg Hill later. Anybody that's listening who doesn't know the Reg Hill books, the D.L. and Pascoe books, go out and read them immediately. The first one, I think, is called A Clubbable Woman. Yeah. They, are, they are just astonishing, astonishing books. Um, now, D.L. and Pascoe on screen didn't, you know, they clashed. They, didn't, they, they weren't ideal working partners. But you, you obviously had a very close relationship that you've already hinted at with, with Warren. Um, you know, a, a kind of legend uh, <laughs> As an actor, were you were you nervous uh, initially about working with 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 somebody who'd done so much? Um, well, obviously, I, I, I knew what he'd done. Um, it was actually when we started, it was easy because we we met before we um, we started shooting, right? Um, and we just hit it off straight away. We, we had to do a photo shoot for the BBC's upcoming autumn season or whatever. So we met down in, in London in Covent Garden for some photo studio and I walked in and I just went, you must be Warren. That, that'll be Warren Clark. And he was like, well, you must be Carl. <laughs> I thought, alright. <laughs> this is good. So, that, you know, we did the, we took about th- three minutes to do the photos, which we were never big fans of getting photographed on set or anything like that. Right. Uh, and then went for a few beers and um, do discovered it. that, um, yeah, we both like beers, we both like football, and we both like having a good time. So. Well, if, if there is anybody out there who doesn't know who we're talking about, and how could you not? Uh, I mean, just Warren Clark's credits alone are astonishing for, you know, okay, Corey, but then Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick, Oh Lucky Man, Lindsay Anderson, and Anthony and Cleopatra with Charlton Heston, the original Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Firefox with Clint Eastwood, for God's sake. Very hard, I would imagine, as a, as a youngish actor back then to not be pretty kind of starstruck when you walk into somebody with that, that list of credits. But it sounds like, it sounds like he, he wasn't the kind of guy He's, to... He, he, isn't, he wasn't the yeah. kind of guy to yeah. play, that, stuff play that kind of the big I am. Yeah. Um, he had his moments every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about some of the moments. Tell us about some of the. I mean, he must have had some amazing anecdotes. I should imagine when you're, you're, you're uh, in the pub after filming. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure. Not, I really, can... not really sure that many of them are repeatable. No, not really. Uh, <laughs> there is one about Clint Eastwood, but I cannot. Possibly oh, tell you oh, that. Yeah, he, he's going to tell. He's got a twinkle in his eye that says he's going to tell me when no, we stop no, no, recording. I, I cannot. Well, I'm, I, I have a I have a Warren story, which is which is only which is kind of that I or I almost w- uh, wouldn't be here if it weren't for Warren. My my wife's TV director, and she directed Warren years ago in a show called Down to Earth. Oh, okay. and got to know Warren pretty well, and I got to know Warren a bit. And Warren read my books very early, and said, oh, "I'd love to play this guy, but I'm a bit old, aren't I?" And we said, yeah, just a bit, Warren. And he went, I know you should get you should get this actor, David Morrissey, this young actor, David Morrissey. And he was the guy that first put David Morrissey into my head as the person I wanted. And ten years later, David played my cop on TV, and it was all down to Warren. Uh, and Excellent. he he, he was yeah. just a great bloke. My wife loved him to bits. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as you say, not the, the big I am at all. No. Just I, I should imagine he could be spiky 
you know, if if he needed when to necessary. be when necessary, yeah. Spike, not that normally be... around uh, television executives. <laughs> <laughs> we will be talking uh, a lot more with Colin about DL and Pasco in a little while. But now we come to our regular feature in which a stab in the dark's private eye, Paul Hirons, catches up with some of those who bring us the very best crime fiction. Now, in this episode, Paul takes a closer look at a true giant of crime fiction, and also, of course, the creator of the DL and Pasco characters, the late great Reginald Hill. <laughs> Yes, thanks, Mark. As promised, we thought it'd be a good time to pay tribute to one of the UK's finest ever crime writers and, of course, creator of DLM Pasco, Reginald Hill. Reg was born in 1936 in West Hartlepool in Durham. His father, also called Reg, was a professional footballer, but Reg Jr. was influenced by his mother, who was a fan of Golden Age crime authors. After national service and time at Oxford University, Reg wrote the first of his 24 D.L. and Pasco novels, A Clubbable Woman, in 1970. Add in loads of standalones, a six-book series featuring Joe Sixsmith in the 90s, and the CWA's prestigious Golden Dagger Award and the Diamond Dagger Award, and Reg really was both brilliant and prolific. But don't just take my word for it. I asked award-winning bestseller and creator of the great Inspector Rebus, Ian Rankin, to tell us what made Reginald Hill so special. I mean, he was he was a huge character, and he was a very genial character when you met him. So, I mean, he was a, a nurturing force um, for British crime writers of my generation because, you know, he was the next step up. He was he was you know him and people like Ruth Rendell and P.D. James and Reg Hill and Colin Dexter were the kind of next. They were a few rungs of the ladder up from us, and we were sort of looking up to them, obviously. Um, but he was very approachable. Um, but at the same time, he was just you know he was he was erudite, but he wore his learning very lightly. He was just a lot of fun to be around. And he can he, you know, what he told me was, you know, crime writing, crime fiction, as well as being fun, as well as being an entertainment, as well as being a roller coaster ride, can also take on pretty dark, pretty serious stuff. And there's a lot of dark, serious stuff in his books just below the glittering, um, rather humorous surface. I think he's he's one of these writers who took his characters on a on a journey. So the, the DL and Pasco that you meet in the first one, two, three books are not quite the same people you meet in the later books. They have life has changed them, and they have they have got older. Um, and he, you know, he had a bit of fun with that, but also the books became, I think, more and more poignant as time went on. So real characters, not only that, real characters who have evolved and developed, well, because of life. But Reg's stories also mix established and familiar elements from crime fiction from a bygone era with modern sensibilities. Many of his books have a bit of fun with the golden age. They have fun with the notion of the the locked room or gathering all the suspects together in a room at the end of the book. Um, But, you know, he was such a witty and such a clever and such a self-aware writer that he knew what he was doing. It never never became cliché and it never became um, hackneyed. Um, It was always a kind of fresh take on old themes and and the you know the older ways of doing things the sort of classic english golden age detective story um and but you know he's but he's he, he wasn't dealing with um amateur detectives it wasn't a miss marple or a peter whimsey or even a sherlock holmes um, these were proper cops they were professional cops um they were getting paid to do this they weren't just doing it for fun and they weren't just doing it to show how clever they were um, and he was able to put together a team. I mean, Wieldy, uh, Wield's one of my favourite characters, you know, and here comes this big lumpen guy. He's a huge, 
not especially attractive guy, um, a big hefty physical presence. And then you, you learn he's gay and he's kind of secretly gay because he's not sure that being a cop is allowed to be gay. And so Reg would think nothing of bringing that in as a, as a kind of recurring theme in the books, that that British or English social life was changing and eventually it was okay for Will to come out. And we sort of see that progression as the series goes on. So you want, you know, you pick up a, a D.L. and Pascoe book and it wasn't going to be the same as the previous D.L. and Pascoe books you had read because all the characters you were going to come across, the stock characters that you got to know well, had changed a little bit in the inter- intervening period because time had moved on and their lives had moved on. Now, Reg was such a prolific writer during his career, it's difficult for anyone who hasn't read any D.L. and Pascoe to know where to start. So where would Ian start? I would start at the beginning um, because, as I say, these characters are going, on, they are going to go on a journey and if you jump in halfway and then you think, I really enjoyed it, you go back to the beginning, you've missed a lot. So... Um, Club of Old Women, that's where I would start and you'll be hooked from book one, you'll be absolutely hooked and I'm afraid you're going to have to sit down and read every single one. So Ian Rankin there on a much missed British crime writing legend. And with that, it's back to Mark and Colin for more DL and Pasco. So welcome back uh, to A Stab in the Dark. I'm here with Colin Buchanan. Now, obviously, we're going to talk a bit more about uh, D.L. and Pascoe in a little while. Um, but just Reg Hill, um, h- how much involvement did you have with Reg during the, the filming of the, ser- the, the numerous series? Very, very little. Uh, very, certainly very little personally. And I don't think he had an awful lot to do with um, the production as a whole. Oh, really? He didn't come onto the set or anything? No, no, no. He, 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 appeared, he came to the... Uh, well, I met him uh, prior to filming. Uh, and he came to the first read-through. But I think it, I think it was very deliberate. I, I don't think he was uh, um, passing comments on right. us by, by not getting more involved. I think, in, in his mind, the books were his, mm-hmm. and the television series was ours. And um, he wasn't going to be influenced by us at all, whereas we were very influenced by him. I mean, it, it was so... It was a joy to do the first four or five series because they were all based on books. Right. So you've got a great source material in the first place that you can get a, a really great script out of. Um, but I, I think you know he he just he, he sort of trod his own path with it. He didn't he didn't sort of pick up on things that we did in the show at all. Right. It was it was his baby, and, and I think he was being true to his readership rather yeah. than to the television audience. Yeah. Um, for instance, there was certain things in the in the television show where... I mean, I used to really like the fact that Pasco was quite a normal bloke. Yeah. He wasn't your typical television detective who's got all these foibles quirks and quirks and, and weird and, stuff, yeah. You know, and got a broken marriage and all this. I mean, I quite like the fact that Pasco had a wife and a daughter, and um, after he finished work, he went home to them. Yeah. You know, and and Reginald Hill kept on with that. I mean, but it, I mean Reg, I think what I think Reg's attitude to it is, is, is the right one. That thing of going, these are the books... That's the TV show. They're different animals. Yeah. You know, and, you know, people often say to writers when they've had their work adapted, you know, what do you think of what they did to your book? And it's like, well, they did nothing to the book. The book's still here. It's exactly the same book. And and choosing to sort of step away and let the TV show go its own way means that he's not influenced when he's writing the next book. Yeah. You know, he's not necessarily writing Colin Buchanan and Warren no, no, Clark. No, not at all. Not you at know, all. they are still the D.L. and Pascoe in his head. I think that's important, right? So, so do I. Um, I think it's very important. I mean, and also it, it's, it gave him the... Uh, Ability to write what he wants. I mean, there's there's one uh, book uh, called Death's Jest Book, which is frankly unfilmable. 
Mm. I mean, it's 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 letters and extracts of things, and uh, it's it's totally unfilmable. So you know, he writes for himself and for his audience. He doesn't write with a view to it being made into a television show. No, he was he was a, he he was a real a real giant. I mean, any again, anybody who hasn't read Reginald Hill, go go read those books on Beulah Heights. I think he's probably oh, yeah. one of the yeah. you know greatest crime novels ever written. And and my my favourite memory of him was uh, there's a, a festival every year we have at Harrogate, and he was on stage interviewing a writer called John Banville, who had begun to write crime fiction under the pseudonym Benjamin Black, and a huge packed audience of crime fans, obviously diehard crime fiction fans. And Reg asked John Banville what the difference was between when he writes as John Banville and when he writes his crime novels and, as Benjamin Black. And John Banville said, "Oh well, the strange thing is, you know, when I'm writing as as uh, as me as John Banville." I can barely scratch out a couple of hundred words a day. But when I'm just writing these crime novels, it's, you know, I could just knock off a thousand words a day easily. And you could f- see Reg start <laughs> to kind of bristle. And he just said something like, well, I, I have exactly the same thing. Every day I get up and I say to my wife, what shall I do? Shall I write a Booker Prize winning novel or another bestseller? And the audience <laughs> is kind of like, yay, go Reg. But I mean, he was a very charming man and oh, a very, lovely, yeah. really, yeah. really nice man. Um, so do you think there was a real difference when the series stopped being based on the books, it, um, se- it seems to me that it had started to get darker. The series. I mean, we were talking before about how uh, crime fiction now seems a bit darker. But D.L. and Pasco went into some fairly dark places around this time. You know, yeah. there's the, 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 the one about the, convic- um, the convicted paedophile who is freed and the father kills the, the yeah, paedophile. Yeah, and Pasco has to dark. cover that up. Yeah, yeah. there was the very last last one we did, I think. Was th- but that is coincidentally around the, the kind of time you got you decided to knock it on the head. Well, in in the end, we didn't decide. It was decided for us. But, I mean, I, I, when I said to Warren after Series 8, you know, I don't think we ought to do any more, um, we then had about 18 months off <laughs> right, uh, from doing it, which was great because we'd been, you know, it had been six, seven, eight months of the year for the previous eight years, you know. So it was nice just to have a, a break from doing Deal and Pasco and go off and do different things. Yeah. Um, and so we, we were persuaded to come back and do it because various reasons I mean not least of which um, coming back to uh, Birmingham really was the was for the crew because because Pebble Mill had shot and the whole drama department was um, getting wound down all the crew were going to have to go to all points <laughs> north south east and west just to find work whereas before in Birmingham they had a, a, an awful lot of work for them and um, and it was for that as well you know as well as for ourselves yeah um, but, you know, it just meant that this great team could all stay together. Did you find that you'd missed it? Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd missed working, certainly missed working with Warren and, yeah. um, and a lot of the crew as well, you know, because I'd been with, with them since um, about 1993 when I was doing this other show called Preston Front because a lot of them worked on so Preston Front and So the same crew, series after series? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. The, the core crew were the same. People came and went, but um, the core crew were all, all the same. So what was it like when you did finally... Say goodbye to it. Was that two thousand seven? That was two thousand seven. Yeah. Down the line, did you did you miss it? Did you you know a year later was it sort of like oh you know what what's missing from my life? Oh, no. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I I loved doing it. I had a fantastic time doing it. I met so many brilliant people, and also Warren. You know, did you stay in touch with Warren after the show finished? Oh, God, and, yeah. 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 Um, well, it sounds like you were great mates. So I mean, obviously you did, but yeah. Um, but I'd done it for twelve years, and we'd made forty six films. Yeah, which is a lot. That is astonishing, actually. That is astonishing. <laughs> and so, so I was quite pleased to just leave that behind. And also, in a way, I mean, I'd kind of fallen out of love with acting a little bit because of 
the way that things had gone towards the end of the Now, that's the very show. strange. That's very strange. I mean, you'd think for an actor, for a working actor, the long-running job is the holy grail. You'd think, I've got this series. Every year I've got this series. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm not filming that, I can go off to other things. I know I've always got this payday and I've got this great job. To say that you'd kind of fallen out of love with acting by the end of it sounds really weird, Colin. It was, it was, it, it, I, just, I just wanted a break. I mean, I'd had... Um, I was really lucky. I mean, I had about 18 years' worth of of constant work, which for an actor is is incredible. I mean, yeah. I, I was having to book time off with my agent saying, please don't tell me. <laughs> no know, more work. I'm going on holiday. <laughs> you know? um, so I, I was glad just to stop and just, you know, take stock and just relax for a little bit. And when, we, But when you... So, so after the Ellen Pascoe finishes and you're doing other stuff... Is it hard when you're so associated with one particular part? Oh, I think I think in other people's heads it is. Um, I mean, there was one beautiful example: uh, Death in Paradise, <laughs> which bizarrely we've we've covered on this show in in, uh, in great detail. You've not done that show. No. Well, I, I was <laughs> I had a phone call from the agent, sort of saying, um, "How would you fancy going to Guadeloupe for uh, three weeks? Yep, um, in three days' time." And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> sounds great." Um, and then overnight. It had been decided that um, one of the executive producers thought that I was too. This is three da- three years down the line, I think, from finishing three Deal. Three years on, um, thought I was too associated with Deal and Pasco, and the audience wouldn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't play copper or anything like that. It was just it was play one of the you know the, the characters in the opening episode, you know. Yeah. And um, so that was a no. <laughs> okay, but that's that, that's I'm not happening. Back, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> I'm guessing people. I mean, it's great to be associated. I mean, to be associated oh, with I, such I, a popular I, I series. I have no problem with being associated with it at all. I mean, um, I, I suppose I, in terms of casting directors or, or producers, I mean, it can be tricky, I guess. But you know, in terms of being associated in, in, with it, you know, in the general public's eyes, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I mean, it's it's lovely. It's lovely to be that part of people's lives. And when did, and it, when did you fall back in love with acting? How long did it take to, to decompress before you went, oh, yeah, I remember, I really like this? <laughs> um, about three years, really. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I don't, did a few little things here and there, but um, it was about three years before I finally, you know, got back in the... You know, go back into doing it. Really. And did you want to go back to stage specifically? Or? Well, I, d- I did go back and do stage. Did um, some Chris, Agatha Christie on stage, didn't you? Then yeah, there were none. Yeah, I did, um, and then there were none. Yeah, for virtually the whole of last year. Right. Um, and I did a JB Priestley play before that, and I did this barking mad thing before that, which uh, like an undiscovered play by Patrick Hamilton. But you're still, I mean, you're still presumably getting recognised, uh, you know, as uh, as Peter Pascoe by yeah. by people who love the show. And I, I, it's one of those things that I think must be very strange for an actor. That you know, obviously you do a long-running TV show. You're in people's living rooms, but this is this is a show that people genuinely loved—a character-based show. You yeah. know, at its best, it wasn't just a whodunit. Absolutely not that. And at, at its heart was this relationship between these two characters that people. And if and if people don't love those characters, the show isn't going to be successful. And the fact that it was so successful is a mark of just how much they did. So it's not just like oh, there's that bloke off the telly. It's mm. here's that guy who I watched year after year. It must yeah. be a very strange thing as an actor, I think. Um, I've not... You know, it's not like seeing somebody who's in an advert. You know what I mean? It's, it's not it's like... Sure. Yeah. It's really a different thing, I think. It's somebody who they know you or they feel they know you. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I get it every t- time I leave the house, to be honest. Really? But, I mean, but people are genuinely lovely. Uh, and as you say, they, they genuinely loved the show and they, they loved Warren and... Um, 
you know, I feel quite privileged that you know it has been um, part of people's lives like that. Um, and I don't, I don't find it weird or um, odd, really. I, I just, I've just kind of learned to to accept it. I think it would be odd if people didn't, in a way. I think it would be really strange if people just, you know, it, it it's a character they've got to know over many years. Uh, and and to trust as well. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. And and I think that that's an important sort of relation. And if and if that can come out of a TV show, I think that's, yeah. I think that's a great thing. I mean, I think what you what you said there about trust is is very important because um you know your audience are trusting that you're going to deliver something of quality and entertaining. Had you any idea what Reg was making of it or Reg, any... Reg was going on, still going along his own path with um. I mean, it was a, it was a real shame because there was um, a, a a great deal on Pasco book as well called uh, the Death of DL, uh, which we never got around never to making um, because that would have been a great one to finish on, um, and, and I think he wrote one, he wrote, did write one more after that called the Cure for All Diseases. So he, he Reg was you know he he, he didn't care about he, he he liked the show I know he, I know he did, but um, as we say he, he wasn't led by it he, he was just plowing his own furrow really. And you've you've done a number of the audiobooks as well, haven't you? Yeah, I think I've done I think I've done all of them. Have you done all of them? How do you find that? The, I, the, the... I, I really enjoy it. I mean it's um it's just you and a producer in a, <laughs> in a little box for three or four days and I mean uh, certainly uh with the with the earlier earlier books, I mean um I just did very bad impressions of all the actors. I was gonna say to were play you them. doing Warren? Were you oh, doing... I, uh, yeah I did Warren, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who actually sounds oddly like John Peel in that <laughs> <laughs> girl? Oh, this is John Peel. Yeah. Um, I, I, I rather foolishly do my own my own audiobooks, and I find it it's so much harder work than I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought I'm just I'm just reading this stuff out, but obviously you're reading you're reading dramatically. You're reading much slower than you would read yeah. on the page, and the killer for me is the accents. I can sit in my office blithely going, he was Welsh, he was Scottish, <laughs> he was Polish, and then a year later I'm in the studio going, oh, my God, I genuinely can't do these accents. Do you, I mean, do, do you find that kind of thing I've, I've challenging? Always, I've always had a, a, a knack with accents, so is it, that's, that's not really so much of a problem for me. I mean, but, but talking about, you know, writing about, you know, I mean, one thing with Reginald, Hill was um, I found doing the audio books because sometimes you read it and you just kind of skim over stuff but he'd introduce a character and then 50 pages uh, he'd write um, he said in his South African burr you know <laughs> oh, just oh god. Thank, thank god I prepared this because you know because I always used to read them first and make notes and about the characters and who they were and you know where they came from and all that because otherwise you'd be tripped up like 50 pages down and have to go and re-record all the... Some, some accents are just, you know, unless unless it's sort of bog-standard London accent or a Brummie accent, I'm, I'm a bit stuffed. And I've got nobody else to blame because I'm the one that's written them. So I will, <laughs> you know, if it comes to recording them, I'll just take out that line that says, he grew up in Edinburgh. I'll just quietly take that line out and go, nobody's going to care. But it is, and, and obviously differentiating male and female characters and... You know, six characters in, yeah. a, in one scene talking. It's incredibly hard. It's not digging a ditch hard, but it's it's really not as easy as you think it's, it's going to be, is it? You think no. And it's a gro- it's a really growing uh, market. I, I I'm think. amazed by how many people um, come up to me and say, "Oh, I've um, I've just bought that one." I, I, I didn't realise that it was it was as big as it was. Um, you know, lorry drivers. You know, um, I think I think there's two things. I think it's got bigger now because because of, in the age of the d- digital download, people now are downloading unabridged books. They get the whole novel, whereas yeah. they used to be abridged. They'd be cut in half so that it would be three or four CDs that could fit in a little box and go in a bookshop. Now they get the whole book. Yeah. Um, and they love being told a story. 
Yeah. You know, which doesn't happen to you once, you, once you stop being a kid. Yeah. Nobody I mean, that, tells that's, you That's what I really enjoy about doing them, um, because you are playing all the characters. You are your own boss. You're your own director as well. And you, what you're doing is spinning yarns, which is what we always try to do with Deal and Pasco, spinning a yarn. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and the, the other thing with uh, the Deal and Pasco, um, we, we always tried to make them individual films. There was no, like, um, house style. We always had a separate, a, a different director for each film who would have a different uh, director of photography, who would have a different composer. And so each film sort of stood or fell on its own merits. You know, there was no, um, but there was no particular house style and there was no particular through line um, for the series. Each, each film should be seen as an individual film. And that's what we tried to do. And, and, and as I say, it's just spinning a yarn. You know. Spinning a very, a very good yarn. So if you were just, you know, you're thinking back to the Alan Pascoe, what's, what, are, what are some of the great memories from the show? Just a couple of, you know, if you were, would it be just hanging out with Warren? Would it be the social side of it? Would it be? Oh, it'd be all that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, myself and Warren used to hang out together all the time. Um, and it, when, when we started um, in, back in the mid-90s, I mean, everybody used to go out and party every night. Um, by the end, the only, people, the only sad <laughs> duo who was still going out of partying all the time was myself and Warren, because everybody else was going to bed because they were just feeling that there's a bit too much pressure on them yeah. if they couldn't deliver the following morning, whereas we were just like, oh, well, we can do it. We can do it. We're fine. <laughs> what, what did Warren make of your impression of Warren? If, did he ever listen well, to any of the audio it. books? He loved did it. He? Yeah, he it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you up to at the moment, Colin? What's next for you? Um, well, I've, I've just finished um, doing a, a, a film um, called The Last Witness, which I've only got a very small part in, but I'm, I'm very pleased to have been associated with it. I mean, it's a guy called uh, Piotr Skopiak, who's a... a a London-born Pole. Right. Uh, and it's a film about um, the Katyn massacre of uh, 22,000 Polish officers in a wood in the Second World War. And it, they were actually massacred by the Russians, but it was all blamed on the Nazis, and it was all... Co- this is, it's a film about the cover-up, British okay. cover-up, after uh, the war because we needed the Russians, or during the war because we needed the Russians on our side. And it's a film all about that because Piotr's uh, grandfather was actually one of the... The officer who was killed. Oh, really? So he's been trying to get this film made for about the last uh, sixteen years, and so for him to finally get it done was was quite an emotional experience, really. Yeah, oh, sound. Where did you film that? Um, basically in the Midlands. Um, oh, Shros- okay. Shrewsbury and um, standing in for Polish wood. Well, yeah, there was a where was that? that? That was in Shrewsbury, yeah, and they had the worst weather, but the best weather at the right, same time. Right. I mean, because it, it was lashing. With rain, I mean, if that was Spielberg, it would have cost about a million pounds in rain bars. But yeah. uh, you know, they got it for free. But um, but yeah, it was yeah, it was all filmed in Shrewsbury and Cheltenham and and Birmingham, right? Um, and, but it, and it's set in this country. But there's like flashbacks, like the woods. That, that's all in Poland. And when, I, and when when will we get a chance to see that? Well, we literally finished it on Sunday, so I don't know. <laughs> I think the the idea is that it'll have a premiere in in Warsaw um, sometime next year, and then hopefully hit the cinemas I, I think to be honest that Piotr was just um, delighted to finally get his mission made right so um, we'll see I, I think it's going to look fantastic well as promised in each episode we ask our guests to come along with their own recommendations for a good read and a good watch now you've already told us that that you hadn't really read much in the way of crime fiction before you, you read uh, Reggie's books in preparation for D.L. and Pascal. Do you read any crime fiction now? I did read um, 
I was, I was offered a play, um, Ruth Rendell, like Judgment in Stone, okay. which is a, a very good Fabulous book, book yeah. I mean, it's, it's got a great first line. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's something like, um, Eunice killed the Coverdale family because she couldn't read or write. That just... Yeah, that gets you, that hooks okay. you in. why? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, anyway, I'm not doing the play. Well, so what have you been reading? What, what, can you, what can you recommend to our listeners as a, as a good read? Well, this, this is quite a literary show, I, I guess, so I'm probably not... Oh, a yeah, very literary show. Okay. Very literary <laughs> show. So I'm probably not telling anybody something that they haven't really already experienced. But um, the book that I've, I've loved the most over the last two years was the the winner of the, the Man Booker, um, you know, Brief History of Seven Killings by okay. Marlon James. I just found it stunning, a stunning piece of work. Um, I mean, it's all it's all kind of set in, in Jamaica, pretty much, apart from towards the end. But it's got an epic scale to it, an epic quality to it. Um, and each, each chapter... Um, it's done. It's not done in the first person, but it's done through the eyes of a specific character, and it's it's just very immediate and very compelling. And it's I've found it unputdownable. You just don't really know what's going to happen next, and when it does happen, it takes your breath away at times. So I would I would thoroughly of, recommend that, one of those especially rare, if you can read Patois. Yeah, or it's also one of those rare Booker Prize winners that's thoroughly readable. They don't. Um, they yeah. don't normally. They don't normally like to give it to books that are really good. Actually, a really good read. <laughs> um, what about something to watch? What about something you've watched recently that's caught your eye? Well, I don't normally get to see much, but I'm, I am um, catching up with things now that you've got things like box sets and all this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've just watched Fortitude, the first series okay. of Fortitude, which I loved um, for so many reasons. It's 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 not a why done it. It's not a who done it. It's more like a what the hell is going on here? <laughs> it's got. I mean, it was, it was very reminiscent of um, the, the John Carpenter film, the, the Thing. Yeah. You know, not just because of it, its um, location. Because right. I mean, it's, it's, location is is somewhere something that you don't see very often, like the Arctic as, as a backdrop, which is stunningly beautiful. Yeah. And very um, fresh in a way um, to be to be watching something like that, uh, but there were. In the in the very first episode, I mean, I watched it with my youngest daughter, and there's this boy who's suffering from hypothermia, who gets put in this hyperbaric chamber, um, in in a research centre. His mother walks out of the room, she walks back in again, and there's a pig in there, and that's just never explained. And I, you know, I spent the next eight episodes hoping that was going to be explained. Never was. Never was. Never was. But, and I I don't know how to describe it apart from the fact that it was just a compelling watch. You Again, you didn't know what the hell was going to happen next or what the hell was going on at the time, but you just knew that you, you had, to keep, you had to keep watching it and stick with it. Well, that's Fortitude, uh, thoroughly great recommenda- recommendation, and A Brief History of Seven Killings uh, by Marlon James. And that's about it for another episode of A Stab in the Dark. We'll be back soon to chew the fat with more big names from the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. But in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark, along with articles and some great book competitions, at uktv.co.uk slash dark. Thanks to Gary Dobbs, Jessica Curry, Claire Frost and Donna Farron for their lovely words on Twitter. Do feel free to get in touch using the hashtag a stab in the dark otherwise drop us in a review at itunes go on do it now a nice five star one six if it's allowed and with that it's a huge thank you to my guest colin buchanan thanks to our producers sam pearson paul hirons and john lemon my name's mark billingham and thank you for listening